Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with world-renowned vitamin D researcher William B. Grant. William has authored over 280 peer-reviewed articles on vitamin D and sunlight exposure since 1996. His primary interests are identifying and quantifying the risk-modifying factors for chronic and infectious diseases with a particular interest in ultraviolet irradiance and vitamin D as well as diet. He's also extremely passionate about getting the messages out that the risk of disease can be modified by diet, supplementation and lifestyle choices. William got his BA and PhD in physics from the University of California, Berkeley. He later found himself working for the NASA Langley Research Center where he operated an airborne laser remote sensing system for measuring ozone and aerosols on many international field expeditions. It is after this where he became interested in the effects of UV light on human health. He has since been doing independent research primarily on the links between vitamin D and disease. I had such a great time recording this episode. Uh, William is uh, such a depth of knowledge and um, likely unparalleled in his field. Um, We covered a lot during this conversation, which I'm really glad about, and I learned so many things, and I thought I knew a lot about vitamin D leading up to our chat, so that says a lot. Uh, So with all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much for coming on today to talk to me, William. I've uh, really been looking forward to this. Um, I kind of want to get it. Kind of wanted to get a background on, um, you know, where you started uh, working and how you ended up getting into looking into vitamin D and um, studying it from an epidemiologic perspective. Okay, um, so I guess it goes back to when I was working for NASA in uh, Virginia uh, in atmospheric sciences. And I was stu- that was a time when we were back in the um, 90s, there was a big concern about the ozone layer and, and um, de- decrease of that and increased uh, amount of UVB coming into the earth. And so I, I, I actually was studying, collecting literature on uh, the adverse effects of UVB like plants and humans. Um, my job at NASA was to um, work with a, a laser remote sensing system called LIDAR uh, that could we fly on an airplane and go around the world and measure vertical profiles of ozone and aerosols. So I, I was coming in contact with the literature on ozone quite frequently. But on the side, I was doing a, 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 an environmental project with the Sierra Club. And I, I, I took on a task of trying to explain the effect of, of ozone and acid rain on the eastern hardwood forests, primarily the oaks. And I teamed up with a um, forestry professor from Ohio, and he taught me how to do what are called uh, geographical ecological studies, uh, or even temporal ecological studies, where you define populations geographically, and, and then you, you, you use these populations as like individuals you look at the health outcomes and the risk modifying factors and do statistical analyses on these these entities. And so we were able to show that acid rain had had an adverse effect on on the white oaks, whereas ozone had an adverse effect on the red oaks. And in hindsight, we realized that the white oaks often grew in a swampy area. So the roots were in close uh, contact with the acid rain whereas the red oaks grew in the dry areas, so the roots were deep, and so ozone is what affected them. Well, so on one of my NASA trips to New Zealand, 
um, in October 1996, um, I um, uh, picked up the newspaper and found out that a study had been done in Hawaii called the Honolulu Heart Study. And they had found that the Japanese American men in Hawaii had two and a half times the rate of Alzheimer's disease as native Japanese. Well, my mother had Alzheimer's, so I was studying that a little bit and realized that people with Alzheimer's had more aluminum in their brain. And in, in, in terms of the forest with acid rain, uh, as it lowered the pH, it depleted the, the uh, started removing the, the base, cation, base cations, your calcium, magnesium, potassium, and making aluminum and transition metal ions more readily available because it, 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 oxi it, it dissolved the oxides. And so I said, well, uh, gee, the, these, uh, these, these Japanese American in Hawaii, the, probably the thing that was affecting them in terms of Alzheimer's was the American diet. So I said, I can, I can do an ecological study on, on Alzheimer's prevalence around the world and find out um, what causes Alzheimer's. And that was a time when it was thought that Alzheimer's was genetically predetermined. Uh, Alan Roses had figured out that APOA epsilon 4 is a big risk factor, end of story. So anyway, I got the data for 10 countries, got the prevalence data for 10 countries, got the macro dietary factors like fat and saturated fat, sugar and, 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 and fish and so on, and did a study and found out that total fat and total caloric supply were highly correlated with Alzheimer's in these 10 countries. Uh, if you had... Um, uh, some ocean fish in a diet, like in Northern Europe, you lower the risk of, of Alzheimer's. But if you had a, a diet primarily based on, on rice, you had very low rate of Alzheimer's disease. I then went to the University of Kentucky, gave a, a, a presentation. They studied Alzheimer's there and, and, and they said, fine, that, that looks great, we'll publish it. They published it in a um, uh, online electronic journal. I hired a press agent, went to the National Press Club in DC and announced to the world that diet is a big risk factor for Alzheimer's. And it got picked up by uh, major TV channels, uh, CNN, as well as Dan Rather on June 17th, 1997. So this is like hitting a home run, my first time bat in the major leagues and just coming from out, totally outside the field. Of course, the Alzheimer's Association said, no, it's, it's genetics. And, and um, um, but, but it, it, caught, it, it got people interested in working on it. And people in various universities started looking to dietary factors and were able to, to confirm some of what I said and then go on from there. Well, in 1999, the, um, this Atlas of Cancer Mortality Rate was published. And um, I put some of the figures on my, um, on my uh, website, uh, sunarc.org. Um, and what was interesting was that uh, um, some of the cancers had very high rates indicated red in mortality rates in the Northeast United States and very low rates in, in indicated in blue and South. And um, I had been studying dietary factors in, in chronic disease. So I tried for a week or two to see if I could explain uh, those rates by diet. No, no way. We eat the pretty much the same food around the country, a little bit different in the Southeast, but otherwise, um, I mean, it's not the Chinese diet, it's not the Japanese diet, it's the American diet. So then I went back to the uh, seminal paper by Cedric and Frank Garland. Now they were, they were beginning graduate students at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health when they saw the early version with five gradations uh, on the maps. 
And the only cancer they could figure out at that time that had a, a, a sunlight effect was colon cancer. So they, they, they wrote a manuscript and said, um, here's, if we overlay the, the uh, annual sunlight rates for the very, uh, on the map contours on the map of, of the cancers. And we find that indeed uh, in the Southwest where there's higher sunlight, you have lower rates of colon cancer. And since vitamin D production is the most important uh, uh, physiological benefit of, vitamin, of UV exposure, exposure, we hypothesize, hypothesize that vitamin D reduces the risk of colon cancer. Well, they got that idea in 1974. It took them six years to get it published. And then it was in a, a British journal, International Journal of Epidemiology. Um, and um, so I had to go back to that and say, well, okay, um, actually, by then, by the time I got involved in uh, 1999, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, rectal cancer, um, um, breast cancer had also been linked to uh, uh, increased risk with low sunlight. So I, I, I um, decided to now use the data from NASA, uh, NASA used satellite uh, data to get the map of solar UVB for the surface in the United States for July, 1992. So I, I, I mapped that into the cancer maps and found there may be 13 types of cancer which had an inverse relationship between UVB doses in the summer and cancer mortality rates. I then uh, wrote that up, submitted it to the journal Cancer in 2002. It was accepted very quickly, just said, well, please have a text editor edit your manuscript. I mean, I'm not that good with words, but I, I, had, I had the idea. So um, I did that. And then once it was published, the critics started coming around and say, well, uh, gee golly, why did you um, omit the states along the border with Mexico? And what about the other uh, factors that affect the risk of cancer? Well, it turns out along the, uh, the border with Mexico, you have a lot of Mexicans. And in Mexico, hygiene is not very good. And so a lot of people there had H. pylori infection, which is a very important risk factor for stomach cancer. And I didn't know how to handle that at first. Um, so I put them back in and, and I, now I find that there were data for Hispanic heritage by state. I could, I could use that. And then of course I put in smoking and alcohol consumption, urban rural residents um, and, and um, alcohol, I don't know if I said alcohol consumption and poverty status redid the analysis and sent it to nine mainstream journals, starting with cancer, and they all rejected it because most of the mainstream journals uh, really are interested in drugs and they didn't want to get ahead of the game on vitamin D. So they all said, well, thanks, but no thanks. Um, one came close, but it said, you're not a trained epidemiologist nor a trained statistician, get one of each on your team and we'll reconsider it. So then I got Cedric Garland on my team hired a statistician, sent it back to them, and they still rejected it. But I went to a conference of vitamin D, a sunlight and vitamin D conference in Germany, and the convener of the conference accepted a manuscript for publication in a, in a Greek journal, Anti-Cancer Research. And that was published in the year uh, 2006, and now maybe has 200, 250 citations. So it's accepted scientifically, uh, but it took a very circuitous route to get there. And now what I do every year, I make an annual update on what's known about UVB, vitamin D, and cancer. But the, the sad thing is, 
as I'm seeing in a uh, manuscript I'm drafting now, that despite the over 40 years we've known about the UVB or vitamin D cancer hypothesis, is still not accepted by mainstream uh, medicine or the public at large. And one reason appears to be that the clinical trials where they enroll people and give them vitamin D and some placebo and then look and see whether those who are treated uh, get lower risk, uh, lower rates of cancer incidence uh, have generally failed. Uh, there are two reasons for that. One is that they've used, often used people with high, high vitamin D levels and given them low vitamin D doses, generally between one and 2,000 IU per day. And by comparison, if you go out in the sun every day, you can make 10,000 to 20,000 IU per day. That's you know, all, all your skin exposed for an hour or two in the midday sun in, in, in uh, Mediterranean or wherever, or Australia. So first, they, 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 they poorly designed the studies. And then they've poorly analyzed the results. What they do is they, they look at those in the treatment arm with vitamin D and the placebo arm with no vitamin D and just look at the, the ratio of, of you know, rates of, of cancer incidence. Well, it turns out that everybody has a different response to vitamin D supplementation and a, a different baseline vitamin D level. So uh, the fact that you've given a lot of people vitamin D doesn't mean that you've increased their vitamin D level that much. What you have to do, which Henry Lahore, which um, um, Bob Heaney pointed out in 2014, is you've got to treat vitamin D as a nutrient and you've got to design the clinical trials differently. You have to start with measurements of something like their vitamin D level. And you want to try to enroll people with low vitamin D levels. You then want to look at the observational studies find out how much it, where the vitamin D level is, where you get a, a, a good reduction. And then you have to figure out how much vitamin D supplementation it takes to go from a low vitamin D level to an um, um, optimal vitamin D level. So uh, what it's gonna take is around five to 10,000 IU per day to really show good effect on cancer. And no study has done that. However, if you look at the vital study out of Harvard, they used, they enrolled over 25,000 people, including 5,000 African-Americans, and gave them in the treatment arm, 2,000 IU vitamin D. Uh, in the placebo arm, nothing. They also had an omega-3 uh, arm uh, treatment and, and, and control. But if you looked at the all 12,500 who got vitamin D treatment, the, you found and compared them with those who got the placebo, you found there was no statistical significant difference between for, for vitamin D incidence versus treatment or not. Uh, you did find that if you omitted the first one or two years of the study, you did get a significant reduction, about 25% in, in all cancer mortality rate, but not in incidence. However, if you look at the trial, the, the, the 5,000 African-American, the black participants, uh, they had a 25% reduction in cancer incidence, uh, which was just not just over the line for being called clinically significant. The peak was 1.01, so it's called a trend. Uh, if you looked at those with BMI less than 25 kilograms per meter squared, again, you had a 25% reduction, but it was statistically significant. So 
Um, of course, smoke, people with lower BMI can, can take, make greater use of the vitamin D because they have a smaller body mass, less fat, and so on. So evidently, the, the trial, which was initiated in 2010, was not designed properly. That was when the Institute of Medicine was still concerned about the adverse effects of vitamin D, in part because they looked at, 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 at um, observational studies in which people with higher vitamin D levels actually had some more adverse, poor outcomes than people with lower, middle vitamin D levels because what happened was they were enrolling some people who had started taking vitamin D shortly before enrolling in the, in the, in the trial, in the, in the observational study, and had a lifetime of low vitamin D level. And so they had incipient adverse effects like cancer, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, and, and came out on the wrong side of the, the study. So I pointed that out in, in, in a couple of, of publications and it's now understood, but in 2010, they didn't understand that. And they didn't understand that you've got to look at this serum 25 hydroxy vitamin D level. So anyway, that, that's sort of the, okay, the, 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 now the other problem is if big pharma were involved and you want to get behind vitamin D, they would very quickly find, figure out how to design a, a clinical trial that would prove that vitamin D worked. They would look at the observational studies, they would look at the doses, they would figure out how many people had to analyze, uh, enroll, they figure out what kind of baseline levels they have to have. And they would organize that study, they'd have different universities get involved, and they would quickly find that yes, vitamin D works. But trials like this are expensive, and vitamin D is cheap. Sunlight is cheap. So why bother? Why bother when, when you can uh, uh, treat people get cancer and make $100,000 for treating them or, or sell drugs or, or so on? So the, 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 the medical system is just not interested in vitamin D. In fact, they, they treat vitamin D as the enemy. Yeah, yeah, it's a really, it's a big problem. Um, but as an epidemiologist, and this is something that um, I've been really interested in, you need to establish what is deficient and what is sufficient and maybe what is optimal. And it seems to me as though the numbers we're being told are deficient and sufficient are probably not where they should be. Um, what do you think um, is a level that is protective for, for cancer and cardiovascular disease? Like what should we be aiming for? Okay, a little background on this. The Institute of Medicine is at 20 nanograms per milliliter as the deficiency uh, back in 2010, 2011. And that was just based on their interpretation of the data for bone health. Michael Hollick came along the same year with Endocrine Society, looked at the data and said that they overlooked one paper, important paper in Germany that showed that people who, who between, had between 20 and 30 nanograms per milliliter still had poor bone health. So it really had to be above 30 nanograms per milliliter. So at that time, all you knew was, knew was for bone health. Now, as we come along for cancer, uh, for example, the, uh, the observational studies uh, for breast cancer are very interesting. Uh, unfortunately, um, if you do a prospective study on, on breast cancer and enroll people and take blood samples at the beginning of the study and then follow them for five or 10 years, um, you'll, the, the, you'll find after about three or four years that the vitamin D level from the blood drawn th uh, then no longer relates to developing breast cancer. 
That's because breast cancer can develop very rapidly. Uh, your mammography is recommended every one or two years because it can go very quickly from non-diagnosed to diagnosed. Uh, colon cancer is very slow growing, so 10 years is okay. And so they've actually shown in these observational studies that yes, over, even over 10 years, you see something for, for colon cancer. But for breast cancer, you almost have to use case control studies where you diagnose, where you look at 20 vitamin D levels at the time or within a year preceding the diagnosis of breast cancer. And if you get those studies, uh, two, two um, um, papers that I like very much have shown that it, you still have reductions in breast cancer out to 70 or 80 nanograms per milliliter. One is a meta-analysis of maybe 20 studies, most of which were case control studies. And it showed a pretty much a, a linear, just a slightly bent line uh, going down to 20% of risk of breast cancer at around 80 nanograms per milliliter as below 10 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, what grassrootshealth.net did was they took individuals from two clinical trials conducted at Creighton University by Robert Heaney and, and, and Joan Lappy, and they got the individual data, got their their twenty their vitamin D level every at baseline and every every six months to every year or so, and what they developed breast cancer. But grassrootshealth.net also enrolls people in community-based uh, open access. Uh, vitamin D trial uh, observational studies in which they take whatever dose of vitamin D they want and uh, re re have their vitamin D level measured every six months by a, a blood uh, pinprick, blood, um, blood spot on a sample which they send in, which is very accurate, by the way. And um, so they had quite a few women who had enrolled in that and got, uh, they only had, only had 78, uh, 73 or so breast cancer uh, incidence cases out of over a thousand or, or 3000 women participating. But that was enough to show a very similar relationship uh, um, with a 20% reduction compared uh, at below above 70 nanograms per milliliter or 60 nanograms per milliliter compared to less than about 10 or 20 nanograms per milliliter. So um, these, I think, show that for cancer, the optimal is around 60 to 80 nanograms per milliliter. Not, 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 you don't just want to be a, a non-deficient or even uh, uh, what's called a normal or, or uh, whatever, above 30. You've got to try to get above 60 or 80. Wow. For, for, for optimal. That's, yeah, that's, that's pretty high. Um, it's funny because I've I've had I know, I know people who have come back with you know under twenty nanograms per mL and the doctor just says I'll oh, just take take a thousand units a day uh, and you'll be fine um, and it's quite hard to tell people um, actually maybe maybe it should be more for a little while what what kind of dosing do you think is is good for people who are in that really low level um, Okay, so for example, I weigh one hundred thirty five pounds. I had been taking 5,000 IU per day, and I got around 60, maybe a little above 60 nanograms per milliliter. When I upped it to 10,000 IU per day, I got around 87 uh, nanograms per milliliter. So um, you got to be in the range of five to 10,000 IU per day to, to, um, to eat up. Now, heavier people need larger amounts than, than thinner people. 
Uh, if you're really trying to shoot for a goal like above 60 nanograms per milliliter, you should have, have a vitamin D level measured, uh, perhaps with your annual physical checkup, or you can get these blood spot tests, which can be fairly inexpensive and, and reliable. Um, if, you, if you've been very low, you might want to take a, a, what's called a bolus dose. Maybe take 10 or 20,000 IU a, a day for, for a couple of weeks to get your level up and then go back to a five to 10,000 IU per day. Um, so yeah, you've got to, and it turns out that um, it's, most, more, it's more important to do this during the winter uh, than the summer, but, but you may as well do it year round at more or less the same amount. The reason, the concern about winter is that cardiovascular disease rates go up by 10, 20, 25% in winter compared to summer. And there's been a big controversy over vitamin D and, and, and cardiovascular disease because not, no, not, not one clinical trial has been able to show that vitamin D supplementation reduces the risk of, of cardiovascular disease. Now, the, the, there is a, a paper from uh, an open um, um, supplementation study in Canada from 2017 by Kimball et al. showing that if you took over 4,000 IU per day to get above 40 nanograms per milliliter, you could reduce blood pressure by around 10 to 18 um, uh, millimeters. So uh, most of the uh, participants with hypertension who enrolled actually were able to overcome hypertension by the end of the year trial. Now, recently, a paper was published on the results of, of dealing with vitamin D uh, deficiency in the uh, Veterans Health administration's hospitals around the country. So this is about a 10 or 20 year study. Uh, what they did was they, they looked at people who were enrolled uh, maybe 10 or 20 years ago who had baseline 25 reduction vitamin D less than 20 nanograms per milliliter. Then they, uh, then, so of course, some doctors told them to take vitamin D, other doctors didn't tell them anything. So they had three groups. Um, those who still were below 20 nanograms per milliliter, those who achieved between 20 and 30, and those who achieved over 30 nanograms per milliliter. And what they found was there was almost a factor of two difference in cardiovascular disease and myocardial infarction and, and, um, and, and mortality rate between those who were above 30 versus below 20. And uh, maybe 1.5 factor for those between 20 and 30 versus below 20. So this is about as good as you're going to get for a, 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 um, a sort of a vitamin D treatment study and cardiovascular disease uh, reduction. And it finally, I think, says that, yes, you ought to be above 30 nanograms per milliliter, at least for cardiovascular disease, especially in winter. Yeah, right. Um, I wanted to just go back a little bit and ask about the um, supplementation. Do you think... Uh, I've heard some people uh, suggest that large doses all in one go um, may crowd the liver enzymes that deal with vitamin D. Do you think there's any benefit to taking, you know, 1,000 units five to 10 times a day rather than just taking one larger dose? Or is that just something that you, you wouldn't worry about? Okay, on a, on a daily basis, uh, it's recommended to take it with the largest meal and perhaps during midday, rather than evening because it may interfere with sleep. Although getting up to 60 nanograms per milliliter has been shown to be beneficial for sleep in the long run. 
Uh, the, the real concern is whether you take a, a, a very large dose once a year or even once a month. And the study, most of the trials on, on large, on monthly or, or, well, on annual doses, they find out pe people who take that often have an increased rate of falls and fractures, perhaps because they've been energized and start walking more and then trip and fall because they have weak bones anyway. Uh, in terms of the monthly dose, well, see, the half-life of, of what we call vitamin D, which is 25-hydroxyvitamin D, that's what you measure when you have your blood drawn, uh, that is a half-life about two and a half weeks. And the rule of thumb in pharmacology is that you can dose at about half the half-life. So that means about one week. So if you took like 50,000 IU once a week, that'd be about the, that'd be okay. But taking 100,000 a month, you're going to have a lot of uh, peaks and valleys, and that's not so good. Yeah, I um I had a conversation with a vitamin D researcher um, here in in Sydney, and she said um, that in those studies in New Zealand where they did the the annual dosing of like five hundred thousand units or something, um, what they noticed was um, that the active form, the one twenty five dihydroxy, was depressed um, slightly. Um, the active form is not something that's uh, really measured ever. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever heard it, but do you think for people who have maybe been taking huge doses, um, their one, their active form might be depressed slightly? Well, possibly, but there's also another concern that you're, you're making other metabolites of vitamin D more pronounced and they could have some adverse effects. I've seen just a little bit of literature in this, but I haven't pursued it. Are you talking about the um, twenty hydroxy, um, like the the similar metabolites, or are you talking about different metabolites? Well, I think there are ones that uh, twenty four, twenty five hydroxy vitamin D or something. I mean, I, I, there are a whole bunch of things, and I really haven't studied them. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about the this idea that you brought up before that a lot of these vitamin D trials haven't shown uh, benefits in cardiovascular disease. Um, I was just, I had this idea that maybe um, it had something to do with uh, full spectrum light rather than the vitamin D itself. And maybe that uh, infrared light may have been playing a role uh, in decreasing cardiovascular mortality. And that's why it's been difficult to show supplementation with vitamin D is um, reducing the risks of cardiovascular disease. Do you think that's something that could be going on? Well, I think infrared radiation could have an effect on the cardio system, but given this latest results from the um, uh, Veterans Health Administration, vitamin D does have a, play an important role. Uh, and like I say, it's been shown to reduce hypertension. The, the, there are two, uh, two of the important risk factors for cardiovascular disease uh, effects are um, hypertension and infl inflammation. And vitamin D does reduce the, reduce the amount of inflammation. And that's also involved in, in like COVID-19. Uh, but the other thing about these clinical trials and cardiovascular disease is it could be that it's just getting below 10 nanograms per milliliter that's the biggest risk factor for um, uh, cardiovascular disease. And people running clinical trials find it very difficult to enroll people with um, very low vitamin D levels. They often turn out to be the dark skin uh, minority people 
who are just not going to take part in, in clinical trials uh, unless you uh, unless they're well educated, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and the fact that I mean, I think that this Tennessee uh, the the, the um, veterans program showed that it was did seem to correlate with more with the low value as well as being uh, more important in winter. Now it's interesting that cancers, other than breast cancer, do not have a seasonal variation. Only respiratory infections, uh, other infections, and, and cardiovascular disease have these seasonal variations. And uh, I think for all these, that means that it's, it's the very low values um, in winter are, are part of the problem. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, I've, I've seen um, really great papers where they, they can show the, the rise and fall in, in mortality um, going season to season. It's, it's really awesome to, well, not awesome, but it's quite interesting to see um, how uh, pronounced those effects are. Um, in, your, in your research, you've, um, I think you've established there's uh, 18 cancers that are um, associated with uh, vitamin D levels. What other uh, diseases have you found to be associated with um, varying levels of vitamin D? Well, there's um, um, Crohn's disease uh, that has a latitudinal gradient, um, multiple sclerosis. Um, uh, that's uh, the work in Australia indicates that there's both a UV independent and a vitamin D dependent uh, uh, contribution to multiple sclerosis. Even Hector De Luca, uh, who's patented the vitamin D2 uh, or compounds based on it, has done mouse, mouse studies, which he shows UV independent of vitamin D has an effect on multiple sclerosis. So Robin Lucas, for example, has worked on that type of program. Uh, multiple sclerosis has a very pronounced latitudinal effect all the way from the equator to the the trop to the uh, the high Europe Europe. It's a much stronger latitudinal gradient than say cancers. For cancers, it's you can show pretty much that UVB has a role in single mid latitude countries, but um, you cannot. Uh, there's too much effect of diet on cancer to 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 um, to do a, a full latitudinal gradient. So, oh, diabetes. Ah, diabetes is another disease for which now we have good evidence that vitamin D plays a role. Uh, Cedric Garland is involved in a study uh, in Southern California reported a couple of years ago in which they, they followed people for about 20 years and found that those, they had a, um, went out to about 80 nanograms per milliliter down to below 10 and found a factor of two or three uh, between those with high and low vitamin D levels. But also there was a Tufts University ran a D2D uh, clinical trial. This was uh, looking at conversion from prediabetes to diabetes mellitus. That was maybe a two or three year study. Uh, they were given 4,000 IU per day. And they did notice in, when they just looked at dose at, at dose and, and response um, for various subgroups, they found that subgroups, some subgroups had a beneficial effect from vitamin D and did not progress to diabetes as much as others did. But finally last year, they did a, um, they looked at 20 that vitamin D levels during the trial and found that for every 10 nanograms per milliliter increase above about 20 nanograms per milliliter, they found about a 
uh, reduction in progression to diabetes. So this, it, it had pretty much the same overall rela relationship to in, in progression to diabetes as the observational study. So this gives good, good support to vitamin D reducing risk of diabetes. Now, since diet plays such an important role, is another case where you probably want to get up to around 60 to 80 nanograms per milliliter to make sure you have the benefit, the good benefits of vitamin D. Of course, it would help to change one diet, but if you're not going to do that, you can take vitamin D. Yeah, right. Were now, there any other ones? Pardon? Were there any other diseases that you've studied that show um, these correlations? Autism seems to show some of it. We've, we've done an analysis in the United States on the data for for young people and autism rate, and it seems to show an effect, inverse correlation with vitamin D. And it could be that vitamin D is reducing the, uh, the amount of inflammation, which seems to be a risk factor. Uh, dental caries, tooth decay, tooth cavities. Um, back in this, I did a review of the literature uh, and, an analysis, and, a, and one of these ecological studies in the United States. And it turns out that back in the Civil War in the United States, back in 1865, they looked at the Union soldiers from, from Maine down to um, Kentucky or so, and found that those in Maine had many more missing teeth than those in Kentucky. There's a real gradient of, of, of missing teeth. Uh, the first clinical trial of vitamin D was by May Mellonby in 1928, and she gave boys um, uh, vitamin D supplementation and those with, um, uh, who had vitamin D had, had a significant reduction in vitamin D uh, uh, in, in, in caries. And she then looked in the, her explanation was that vitamin D affected calcium. And so um, uh, vitamin D was affecting the, the, the growth of the, 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 the teeth. But being a good scientist, she also used a microscope to look at the, uh, the bacteria in the teeth and the cavities and found the bacteria in the teeth were dead. Now, of course, she had no idea that vitamin D could fight, uh, reduce, uh, fight and kill bacteria through induction of cathocidin, which can, can puncture the, the, the um, envelopes of bacteria and the viruses. Uh, I mean, it wasn't until 2006 that people at UCLA found that cathocidin was involved in, in killing uh, um, tuberculosis uh, bacteria. And uh, now it's been realized that it, it has, a, that's the main agent in killing, uh, reason that vitamin D kills bacteria and viruses. So um, dental caries, I think it plays also an important role in many childhood diseases, whether it be measles or mumps or whooping cough, which I had as a child growing up in Sacramento. Of course, now we have vaccines and nobody wants to know whether vitamin D could reduce the risk of these because everybody gets, gets uh, treated with, um, uh, with, with vaccines. Uh, I don't know if you want to discuss COVID. There's some evidence that plays a role there too. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there won't be a better time than now. So, um, okay. It seems to me that um, vitamin D plays a huge role in the severity of the of the progression of the infection, um, in in a, in a very in a very very pronounced way, um, 
I guess I wanted to know uh, how how much how much do you think it's playing a role? Because it seems to me as though the only people that are really getting sick are the ones that have uh, under twenty grams per ml. Okay, the um, it turns out there's a bit of a problem with the observational studies where they measure vitamin D level near the time of diagnosis because COVID is a, a, an acute inflammatory disease and any acute inflammatory disease lowers vitamin D levels. And so the more severe your COVID is, the more, the more it's gonna lower your vitamin D level. So of course, if you do observational studies, you're going to find an inverse correlation between vitamin D level and severity of COVID. Now, but there are two other ways to go about this. One is to do prospective studies in which you, uh, you, you look at people who develop COVID or become uh, positive, seropositive to SARS-CoV-2, but you get their vitamin D levels from sometime before when they were uh, came down with the seropositivity or, or the COVID. So we have studies from Israel, we have studies from Chicago, uh, we, we have a study from the United States based on seropositivity of the virus. And all these do show um, an effect uh, of, of uh, we also have a study on, on, on African-Americans in the United States showing a very strong effect on pre-diagnostic vitamin D levels on the risk of, of COVID or, or SARS-2. And uh, what, we, what it appears is that um, you can get maybe a factor of two reduction in the risk by going to high levels of vitamin D compared to low levels of vitamin D. Um, uh, uh, now, if you go beyond that and ask, well, can you use vitamin D to treat uh, COVID? So the best results are from Spain in which they've used the 25-hydroxyvitamin D called calcifidial, which um, sort of putting in the, the sort of the preformed Vitamin, circulating vitamin D metabolite. See, if you take vitamin D supplements, it might take five days to go from uh, ingestion to developing the 25 hydroxyvitamin D. But if you use these high dose, which is equivalent of 100, 200,000 IU vitamin D per day, um, in, in given, I mean, they'll give you an equivalent of 300,000 IU of vitamin D equivalent over a week. And they find that if, if you have COVID and go to the hospital, that can prevent you from going to the uh, the intensive care unit. Now, there was a study in um, uh, Brazil where they gave people 100 or 200,000 IU of vitamin D, but they, this is already the 11th day of COVID. They had a lot of, uh, they were, some of them already in the ICU, they had many problems and vitamin D didn't have any effect. So the, the, Two most important effects of vitamin D in reducing or treating vitamin D, as far as I can tell, are first of all, reducing the, uh, the replication and, and viability of the virus through indu inducing cathelicidin. And then second, uh, reducing the risk of the uh, cytokine storm. So whenever you get sick, um, you're gonna have these chemical messengers called cytokines and cytokine, uh, chemokines that are gonna go around from cell to cell, telling the cells what to do. And in the process, they start in, in increasing inflammation and, increase in, and increasing temperature. 
it's all part of the, the fighting a disease uh, pattern. But if you're old, uh, if you're elderly, if you have chronic diseases, your inflammation, your, infl your immune response may go haywire and you'll start producing so many cytokines, because, but because they're not working, you keep producing more. It's like the, the source of apprentice. He's gonna <laughs> keep bringing these buckets of water until he floods everything. And now once you get the, the, the damage from the cytokine storm, it will go on, a, it will go to the, uh, the vascular system, to the brain, to the kidneys, to the lungs, et cetera, and start damaging the surfaces. And, and um, once you get the damage, uh, it takes a long time to repair. You've got to start rebuilding the organs. Uh, you've got to first of all, get rid of the, these, these cytokines and, and the virus and then start repairing. And so a lot of people who develop, who develop COVID now have what's called long haul COVID because of all the damage. So the important thing is if you're gonna to wanna to prevent COVID, you wanna do high dose vitamin D supplementation to improve your immune system. And what Michael Hollick showed in terms of, of um, uh, preventing it, preventing the uh, seropositivity is you wanna be above 55 nanograms per milliliter. And then what the, the uh, Spanish, Spanish show is that if you're gonna treat it, uh, if you haven't been taking vitamin D, you might wanna use the, the preformed 25-hydroxyvitamin D in high dose form to get in there quickly and, 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 and increase your vitamin D levels. Wow, these 55 nanograms is very high, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah, well, there seems to be, and not just for COVID, but there seems to be a huge disparity between um, the health of um, people of color and white people, regardless of um, you know what country or, or, or where in the world you are. Um, I think you've uh, done some commentary on this. How, how, much, how much of that disparity do you think could be explained by the fact that the more melanin you have, the more time in the sun you need to generate vitamin D? Well, okay, in the United States, um, the average uh, black uh, inhabitant has uh, an average value of around 16 nanograms per milliliter. The average Hispanic around 21 and the average around white around 26. Now for the whites, it goes up to nearly 30 in the summer and down to 20 in the winter, but average around 25, 26. So blacks have about 40% lower vitamin D levels than whites and Hispanics have about 20% lower. Now we did publish a paper a few months ago where we looked at the effect of vitamin D supplementation on uh, risk of various health outcomes for blacks and, and whites. And, and, and point out that um, uh, maybe not so much for cancer incidence, but certainly for, for cancer mortality rate, it played a role. And for diabetes, it plays a role. For respiratory infections, it plays a role. We didn't have the good data for cardiovascular disease at that time, uh, but we do now, and, and it would play an important role there. Unfortunately, uh, we, the, uh, in the United States, black residents are reluctant to listen to whites in terms of what they should do because there's a lot of bad history of, of whites and, and, and blacks in terms of health outcomes. And the black doctors are not interested in telling the black residents about vitamin D 
because they'd rather treat them with, with drugs and surgery and all that sort of thing. We've contacted many black physicians and only found one or two who are interested. Otherwise, they just don't really care. So it's, it's been really hard to, to communicate uh, this, the message to the African-Americans. And they don't really know much about supplements anyway. Um, and um, they're not going to spend more time in the sun. I mean, when they worked in the fields, of course, they spent more time in the sun. But now they work more in offices or stay home or stay with air conditioning. So they're not getting the kind of vitamin D that they used to. So it's, it's a hard problem. Yeah, I, I think I've heard um, Dr. Hollick say um, something about uh, needing between four and 10 times the amount of UV to make the same amount. And then you put the obesity problem on top of that. And the fact that the more fat, the more adiposity you have, the more vitamin D you need. Um, so, I mean, is there, is there something um, that we should take into consideration when um, figuring out the supplementation dose based on, on weight? Like if someone's uh, really obese, is there, should we be going, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20,000 units a day? Um, and then well, said, from there? Well, doctors always try to look at safety issues. And for vitamin D, the Institute of Medicine said, that the upper limit was fourth, upper tolerable limit was 4,000 IU per day, uh, but they said they found no adverse effects up to 10,000 IU per day. So I think one can, can um, argue with to doctors that 10,000 IU per day is okay. Now there is a, a doctor I'm working with, um, um, uh, Dr. McCulloch in Ohio. He uh, works at a hospital for uh, prisoners and and, and, and and psychiatric people, I guess psychiatric people primarily. And he will give them five to 10 to 50,000 IU per day. He gets informed consent and he monitors their vitamin D levels. And he's found no adverse effects uh, in, in his patients. Um, he's uncovered some hypercalcemia, which is not a problem, not due to vitamin D, but to underlying factors. Uh, no kidney stones, uh, et cetera, et cetera. He's found he's been able to reverse psoriasis uh, in some cases uh, with his high dose up to 50,000 IU per day. Uh, so in a, in, a, in a person who's, you know, really sort of trained in vitamin D is going to monitor the people that works pretty well. Now, if, a, if you can get a doctor who will um, listen to that, you can get them to maybe work with the people and, and help them. With that. Now, there's another problem with taking high dose vitamin D in terms of cofactors. First of all, magnesium is involved in the enzymes that convert vitamin D to different metabolites. So you really ought to be taking maybe 4,000 IU, uh, 400 milligrams of magnesium uh, per day, not the oxide form, which is too tightly bound, but a citrate or, or, or something like that. You also want to uh, take vitamin C, maybe one or two grams a day, because one of the effects of vitamin D is to um, try to reduce inflammation. And so it, it helps, it sort of uses glutathione in, in that process. And glutathione, um, you use that up, you need vitamin C to, to replace and replenish it. So one or two grams of vitamin C. And then you've got to worry about if you're taking too much calcium, uh, either from diet or from supplements, you probably want to reduce the, the intake a little bit, but also think about using vitamin K2 a good source of that is natokinase. You can get a powder form. So what vitamin K2 does is it tells the body where to store the calcium in the hard tissues 
the bones and the teeth and not in the arteries and veins, you don't want to get um, calcified arteries because you get hypertension and so on. Uh, so you might want to consider all those things um, over the short run, it doesn't matter. Oh, and, and another thing it was found that in the, in the sleep study, that after two years of taking enough vitamin D to get up around 60 nanograms per milliliter, some of the patients that were being treated started, said, well, we're, getting, we're, we're feeling painful, uh, overall pain. What's the cause of that? Well, fortunately, the doctor working with the patients found out that as you change your vitamin D level, you can change your gut biome. Now, the gut biome, you have all these bacteria and mold and, and whatever that interact with each other. And so the byproducts of one part of the biome might be the, the intake for another part of the biome. Well, what happened was the, the B vitamins got used up in the system and the B vitamins were, were helped reduce the risk of, of, of pain. And so what she found was by giving the patients the what's called B100 uh, tablets, which have 100 um, milligrams of each of the B vitamins, that it quickly, that within a month or two or so, it restored the balance of the, of the gut biome and the systemic pain went away. So that's one more factor to consider. Uh, and vitamin D has been shown to reduce the systemic pain. Often as people with low vitamin D around five to 10, 15 nanograms per milliliter, often dark skinned people in the United States who have systemic pain and they can remove, reduce that pain by, by taking vitamin D. Wow, I, I, I knew it interacted with um, the gut bacteria and B vitamins, but I, I, I didn't know about that, that study. That's, um, that's very cool. Awesome, yeah. awesome. Um, I, I also wanted to backtrack. I think you wrote um, a paper on the association between vitamin D and anemia. Uh, no. No, okay, I must have been I read some, but I haven't. Someone I else. Right. Ed Giovannucci has, uh, for example, at Harvard. Right. Do you, do you know what that interaction might be, um, how, how that might be affecting? Not exactly, but it does bring up a, an important point about pregnancy. Um, so I can digress to there. Um, so the grassroots health group working with people at uh, um, Carol Wagner and Bruce Hollis at Medical University of South Carolina did an open, access, open label study on supplementing part, uh, pregnant women at time of their first prenatal visit. And they had a lot of Hispanics, a lot of blacks, uh, some Asians and a lot of whites. And they uh, of course drew blood samples and gave them a free bottle of 5,000 IU vitamin D capsules and counseled them on how much they had to take to achieve uh, over 40 nanograms per milliliter vitamin D. At the end of the study, um, the, those who had below 20 nanograms per milliliter had, had a, reason, a moderately large number of preterm deliveries, less than 37 weeks of gestation. If you looked at above 40 compared to less than 20, there was about a 60% 60 difference in preterm deliveries. So the, the preterm delivery is, is very expensive uh, and very uh, adverse health effect, et cetera, et cetera. So they showed that, that, that um, you really want to take like 5,000 IU per day when you're pregnant to avoid that. You, the other thing has been shown very well 
is reduce the risk of pre preeclampsia, which is essentially high 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 blood pressure during pregnancy, and that's one of the important. So preeclampsia, preterm delivery, C-section delivery, and anemia are the four horsemen of, of uh, increased risk of uh, maternal mor mortality during pregnancy. Uh, Michael Hollick did a study, an observational study, where they showed that um, women who had above 30 or 40 nanograms per liter had much lower rate of, of, of needing a preterm uh, C-section delivery. And one of the problems with, with C-section delivery is you can, you can have uh, a lot of blood loss um, if you don't uh, quickly patch the women up. And so you wanna to try to avoid that uh, if you can. Although it's becoming much more elective now than, than, than uh, compulsory. So, uh, and then if you're, if you're uh, nursing an infant, you've gotta take um, maybe 4,000 IU per day vitamin D in order to have 400 IU per day of non-converted vitamin D in the breast milk so that the nursing infant can convert that to 25-hydroxyvitamin D. It doesn't want to see pre-formed -pre 25-hydroxyvitamin D. It wants to see native vitamin D. So... Uh, yeah, um, I guess um, moving on up to a little bit of a different direction, there's a, there's a bit of a controversy um, about whether vitamin D2 and vitamin D3 are equivalent or should be used. Um, what are your opinions on, on the D2, D3 debate? Okay, I come down on the side of D3 and oppose to D2. What Michael Hollick says is, well, D3 is used by doctors because it's patented and they can easily get it from the pharmacist and, and give it out in 50,000 IU uh, capsules. Well, there's also high quality vitamin D3 in 50,000 IU capsules um, and it can be prescribed. So that argument sort of falls away. But if you look at this uh, trial, for example, trials on D2 and D3 and all cause mortality rate, uh, D3 has shown uh, maybe like a 16% reduction in all cause mortality rate. D2 has actually shown a somewhat of an increase in, in mortality rate with taking D2. Uh, the the half the half life of vitamin D two or twenty five hydroxyvitamin vitamin D two in the body is shorter than for D three, and it's really you know based on vegetable. Um, it, it comes from yeast or from fungi, and it's not the same molecule as D three, and you wouldn't expect it to have the same function in the body. So um, uh, I think that if you look carefully at all the studies, it is not so good a way to go. Now, if, you, you, if you're a vegan and you want to have no animal products, you can take vitamin D2, but you probably ought to take more and expect less from it. Yep. And I keep arguing with my friends about that, and they, uh, they you know, won't budge. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, yeah, I think, I think D3 is the, I mean, it just makes sense because it's the, it's the, it's the human form. Um, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you wrote um, a commentary on the Big Pharma disinformation playbook um, right. and and them and possibly purposefully delaying the acceptance of vitamin D as a as a treatment or even an adjunct to treatment. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you think's going on with this delay? Sure. Well. Um 
the whole medical system, we have a medical treatment system, not a disease prevention system. And like I mentioned, there's a lot of money we made in treating cancer, um, uh, um, both pharmaceutically and, and, and surgically. Um, I heard about the disinformation playbook from the Union Concerned Scientists, and they outlined uh, how it was uh, first applied by the tobacco interests, and then the sugar interests, the football interests, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked into it and, and, and looked at the five um, uh, tenets of it. The first one, one of them is to, to try to, to show that the so-called experts in the field are not really credible or, or believable. And for example, Michael Hollick is the number one vitamin D man in the United States. So two or three years ago, three, about three years ago, there was a big hit piece in the New York Times saying that he took money from um, vitamin manufacturers, he took money from the indoor tanning industry, he took money from the vitamin D uh, uh, blood, blood level measurement people, therefore he's tainted. Well, never mind that doctors take money from big pharma when they do these trials. Are they tainted? The second thing is they try to do pass off studies uh, as being reliable that show that, uh, for example, vitamin D is not very effective. Well, the whole history of, of vitamin D supplementation and randomized controlled trials is uh, just totally backwards. I mean, they use vitamin D dose, not 25 for vitamin D. They enroll people at high levels, they gave them a, a small doses, and they turn around and say, see, it doesn't work. Uh, next thing they want to do is put their people from their industry in positions of power. So if you look at who's leading the, the uh, Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, and the Food, Food and Drug Administration, they all have very strong ties to, to pharmaceutical industry. And at the FDA, there's a revolving door. You, you work for them, you don't, you don't promote vitamin D, you leave, you go and work for big pharma with a big salary. Uh, another thing they do is because of the money in, 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 in the big pharma industry, they, they can pass this money around to universities, to the media, um, to opinion, uh, other media. I get a lot of money for, for, for funding to universities. They get a lot of advertising dollars to the media. And like now during the COVID era, there's actually a media blackout on vitamin D in the mass media and the social media uh, are restrained in what they can say. I mean, uh, some like Twitter will still uh, let you promote, uh, talk about vitamin D and what it does scientifically. But I think YouTube uh, tries to take those, uh, those posts down. Um, I think there's a fifth tenant, but I guess you get the, I think you get the idea that, that whatever way they can, they, they try to discourage vitamin D and um, to keep, it's just, you know, business practice to try to, uh, do what you can to, to protect your 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 market and 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 discourage the um, the uh, the simple opponent uh, uh, simple ways to oppose it. It's very sad. Yeah, it is. It's um, it's it's very very sad. And I, I um I found this uh, this paper a few months ago that suggested that um, supplementing the older adult population of Germany. 
um, could probably save 30,000 cancer deaths per year and a potential net savings of 254 million euros per year just by supplementing the elderly population of Germany. Um, I'm thinking even if they're even if they've drastically overestimated that, it's still such a large difference in just, um, you know, giving giving a subset of the population enough vitamin D to keep them from deficiency. Um, I know it's hard to put a dollar value on these things, but um, that's an enormous amount of savings in public health. Why Why aren't governments jumping at this idea? Well, governments are run by corporations and lobbyists. I mean, we got the best government money can buy in Congress. A lot of people, even Democrats, are you have a lot of money from from big pharma, and they won't oppose big pharma on on pricing, um, so we don't get to bargain for 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 rates. I mean, we pay a lot more for drugs in the United States than in many other countries, like Canada, and so people have often go and cross the border to get. Uh, Drugs, but now they can't even cross the border because of COVID. Canada won't let Americans in very much. Mm. Um, it's um, um, United States has about twenty percent of its GDP gross domestic product goes to healthcare, and as my colleague at, at, at VitaminDWiki.com points out, um, uh, if if you had a say you had a, a, a big health maintenance organization like Kaiser Permanente. If you had them promote vitamin D where they told everybody, get your vitamin D level up to 60 nanograms per milliliter, uh, they might lose half of their 200,000 employees. So they can give lip service to vitamin D, but they can't really put it in big practice. And if you might recommend, recommend to, your, to your viewers that vitamindwiki.com, operated by Henry Lahore, who's a retired Boeing aircraft engineer, who just spends every day, full time every day, sucking in all the vitamin D literature you can and, and put, putting it on his website and making it so he can translate to any language you want. Then there's grassrootshealth.net run by Carol Baggerly, who started that about 2007, 2008 uh, with the help of Cedric Garland. She calls herself a, a vitamin D, uh, a breast cancer treatment survivor. She had mastectomy, radiation treatment, uh, um, chemo treatment, hated every one of them, and only after then her, her, her family physician said, you have osteoporosis, you should start taking vitamin D. And she looked in and started finding that, well, vitamin D could have prevented breast cancer. And she was furious with the, with the, vitamin D, with the medical system. And uh, so she started this, it's called grassrootshealth.net because she realized that she's not gonna convince the medical industry. So she has to, to target the, um, the, um, the, the people you know, at large. So, um, mm. and then um, I also like scholar.google.com. It's a very easy place to get vitamin D papers. They'll often tell you where you can get a free copy and who has cited, how many papers have cited any particular paper. So you can sort of judge the quality of the paper that way. So it's, it's, a, it's a easier to work with than pubmed.gov. Although pubmed is now showing who cited various papers but it's not going to show you necessarily where to get a free copy. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a big problem as well. I, I don't think this stuff should be behind a paywall, particularly now. But um, fortunately, there are ways to get around it, um, and you know that's where I've that's where I've got most of most of my uh, papers on this. 
Um, one of the things that I was really, really wanting to talk to you about was the uh, association between uh, sun exposure and uh, skin cancers ah. because um, it seems to me as though vitamin D is a perfect little compensatory mechanism to help deal with the impact of UV light. And from my um, understanding, the relationship between sunlight and melanoma is not clear whatsoever. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about um, the three types of skin cancers and how they relate to sunlight? Okay, let's go back one step first. Uh, Nina Joblonski and George Chaplin have gone around the world studying skin pigmentation, um, both um, before you've exposed to sun and after you've been exposed to sun. And they figured out that if you live, if your heritage is between 20 and 40 or so latitude in north, northern hemisphere, uh, you have the ability to tan because in winter, there's very little solar UVB, if any. So as the sun recedes, you've got to sort of lighten the skin to be able to get more penetration to the layer of 70 hydrocholesterol under the skin to, to make vitamin D. But in summer, as, as um, the sun becomes more intense, you've got to put a tan layer on, which gives a factor, unless you stay in the sun, to a factor two to four times longer than with pale skin. So you have, in fact, then there's another thing that's been found uh, recently is that if you have high vitamin D levels, uh, you can actually stay in the sun longer because you're not going to get the inflammation. Um, it's going to help reduce the inflammation, I guess, by reducing cytokine production. But in terms of mel now getting to melanoma, melanoma is an invasive cancer, just like um, colon cancer and breast cancer and so on. And so vitamin D has, has the usual mechanisms. First, it's going to try to find melanoma cells and kill them or not to let them progress. And if you start developing melanoma, it's going to try to reduce the angiogenesis, the formation of blood vessels around the tumor, which are required to bring more nutrients to that. And if it does even get beyond that, vitamin D is going to help, try to help it prevent it from metastasizing. And so what they do find, because a tumor is constrained is not going, to, not going to kill you. But once it starts getting into the other tissues, it does that. So what they found in Australia and elsewhere is that if you have high vitamin D levels, your, your, your thickness of your melanoma is thinner because the vitamin D is playing an important role. So um, um, now squamous cell carcinoma, which is um, uh, moderately deadly, um, is mainly due to UVB exposure. And um, uh, I guess it's causing mutations and then it starts going one way. Basal cell carcinoma is caused by both UVA and UVB, is very seldom fatal. Um, and um, um, I'm not sure what the role of vitamin D is in reducing the risk or progression of both those types of cancer. Um, but the problem in Australia is that many people have the Celtic skin red hair, freckles, inability to tan well, inability to, and so they're at great risk of, of, of developing melanoma and probably the other cancers as well. In fact, th th that's why um, uh, indoor tanning has been banned in, in Australia and people are told to, um, to uh, 
be careful in the sun, et cetera. And I think that's good advice for Australia with in the summer because of the you have the sun is closer to the earth during the austral summer. Uh, the ozone because of the ozone hole, the ozone layer is thinner, and um, also Australia, New Zealand are just closer to the equator than say the United States is. So. Um, a lot of factors suggest that you've got to be careful in the sun in Australia. Um, but uh, they have found that cancers and um, multiple sclerosis and other diseases do have a latitudinal gradient in Australia. So as you go farther uh, south in Australia, you, 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 uh, you do get an effect of, of, of protection from vitamin D. But if I were an Australian, I would probably, um, in today's lifestyle, I'd probably rely on supplements rather than vitamin D supplementation for uh, my vitamin D. On the other hand, there's a factor we, we haven't mentioned uh, that is related to long wave U, UVA, which um, can stimulate the production, the, the release of nitric oxide into the blood, which lowers blood pressure and fights infections. Um, and there's uh, Richard Weller in the uh, UK and I think uh, Dr. Hart in Australia, who are studying the effect of nitric oxide on COVID-19 and pointing out that part of the reason that COVID disappears in the summer is that UVA through producing, uh, re releasing nitric oxide uh, helps kill it, as well as the vitamin D uh, effect killing it. So there is some benefit of, and now you, it turns out that you're going to make vitamin D in the only when your when the shadow is shorter than you are. It's reverse of the dermatologist uh, uh, shadow rule. They say go out in the sun when your shadow is longer than you are. We say go out when your shadow is shorter. But in Australia, perhaps the shadow rule, uh, the dermatologist shadow rule is okay in terms of nitric oxide uh, release for, for for example for COVID. So maybe a morning and afternoon sun might help you reduce the risk of COVID and blood pressure. Mm -hmm. But you may want to take your vitamin D supplements. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the idea? I've seen a few people uh, suggest that um, melanoma is only increasing in indoor workers and outdoor workers who have occupational exposure uh, seem to have either no effect or uh, a protective effect. Um, why, do, why do you think melanoma is increasing in people who are exposed to less sunlight? Because their vitamin B levels are lower. Uh, but also it often, it, there may be some local effect of, of UV exposure on, on, um, on melanoma. I did do a study in Nordic countries where I used occupation as, as the, the, the factor to look at. And I used lung cancer incidence less uh, lip cancer incidence and found that um, melanoma rates were slightly lower in the higher occupations than in some of the other occupations. So if, you, if you're an indoor worker, so suppose you're a waiter or something or a night shift worker, maybe you go to the beach once a week and so you get sunburned and, and that's, damn, that's a risk factor for, for melanoma, but you're not making much vitamin D. So I think that's part of the reason that, that um, the indoor workers have a greater risk. Of course, Cedric Garland and colleagues show that the submariners had a greater risk of melanoma than the deckhands in the Navy. 
yeah. decades ago. Yeah, their, their work is very, very cool. Um, I, I read in a paper, I can't remember um, which, who, who was the lead author on that, but um, something about UVA um, without UVB actually being able to break down uh, vitamin D in the skin and, um, and exposure and through pollen. windows. Well, yeah, yeah, Ann Webb and also um, um, Diane Goddard may have written. Diane Goddard wrote that paper from works with the right. FDA. Yeah, yeah. Is that so? Is that something that people need to worry about if they're exposed to light through windows where the UVB is being filtered out, but the UVA is still getting through? Well, there is some concern that that people who drive commercially uh, on the road quite a bit and have the glass will block the UVB, but not the UVA. You might be getting a little bit more UVA. I think UVA is a risk factor for melanoma, and and UVA, uh, as shown by Hollick and and, um, and Webb, um, wavelengths up to about three hundred and thirty-one nanom nanometers can also reduce the concentration of vitamin D. It, 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 it interacts with some other metabolites and destroys them. So if you're in the sun, you can never produce too much vitamin D because you have the breakdown as well as the production. Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess that's one of the built-in safety mechanisms to sort of keep keep the level titrated um, where yeah. it needs to be. And in Africa, they, they find that the pastoral people in East Africa might have levels around 40, 45 nanograms per milliliter. These are people, they have some clothes, but they're, they're on uh, out of the sun all day with their flocks and whatever. But now we're finding that that, that going to higher levels is beneficial in terms of um, reducing risk of, of some diseases. So at least you didn't, maybe you didn't have it quite right in terms of the upper limit. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems like the, um, the potential harms are, are very um, overstated and it's really a, an extremely safe thing to supplement with even at high levels. Um, in your, in your work as an epidemiologist, what, what are some of the strongest associations that you've seen uh, with um, vitamin D? Well, some of the recent work on um, serum vitamin D levels and, and incidence of several types of cancer, breast, colorectal, um, bladder cancer, um, uh, yeah, several other cancers. Um, cardiovascular disease is a very, very strong inverse correlation between 25 vitamin D levels and, and cardiovascular disease and stroke. And like I say, the, the problem about adopting, uh, recommending vitamin D to reduce risk of cardiovascular disease is that the clinical trials with low dose and high, people with high vitamin D levels haven't found an effect. Um, there's, uh, of course, all sorts of infections, especially infections that are more common in winter, Vitamin D helps protect against those. Um, uh, helps um, pain. Um, helps with with uh, bone uh, with dental caries when people are young. Mm -hmm. you know, periodontal disease. Now, I, I, I had a postdoc position in Berlin in the early seventies uh, when I was in my early thirties. And I worked in a laboratory and didn't know anything about vitamin D, didn't spend much time in the sun. I had five cases of colds for, uh, during that two-year period. And when I returned to California, I was diagnosed with periodontal disease. Um, so what vitamin D does is it helps kill the bad bacteria in the mouth that cause periodontal disease. 
And um, so that's how I got that. Uh, there's also evidence that vitamin D um, improve, uh, maintains good cognitive function and reduces the risk of Alzheimer's disease and, and, and cognitive decline. I mean, it, it also, uh, as shown, well, shown in Nordic countries by um, that, it was a, it was a, a melanoma study. And um, um, the author of the, the study said he looked at uh, mortality rates for participants in that study and found that those participants who had higher sun exposure had 30% lower mortality rates than those with lower sun exposure. So... Um, this is Lindquist, is it? Pardon? Um, the lead author's name is uh, Lindquist? Yeah, Lindquist. Yeah, yes. yeah. They're, they're, um, those two studies are um, quite fascinating, really. Um, yeah, yeah I, think, I think the people who had the least sun exposure were likened to the mortality rate of those who smoked. Um, right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I have a doctor friend in the United States who's... Um, he started uh, giving his patients five to have them take five to 10,000 IU per day of vitamin D. And um, they got to around 70, 80 nanograms per milliliter. And as a result, instead of coming in four times a year, they came in once a year. As a result, uh, working in a small town, he ran out of patience and had to close his practice. <laughs> and so that's the hazard of, of doctors telling their patients to take a lot of vitamin D. Mm, yeah. Well, hopefully, well, that's a that's a good bad thing to happen, I suppose. Um, it's yeah. noble. Um, so, where, what are you working on at the moment, and and what are you what are you hoping to um, look into in the future? Okay, well, um, I, I I did happen to publish the first uh, article suggesting that vitamin D would reduce the risk of COVID nineteen. And then the mechanisms would be reducing of inflammation, cytokine storm, and um, destroying the, the, the virus. And that, had, that was the highest cited paper in, in 2020. It has over, uh, over, I think it's up to about 1,500 citations by now, uh, according to scholar at google.com. Google it's sort of fun to watch the publication come in and watch it play in the media and all that. So what I'm trying to do, and I, I've been working on cancer for over 20 years. And I'm preparing a manuscript now, trying to explain why we should think that vitamin D does reduce the risk of, of many types of cancer. Um, I'll be presenting this at, at um, a conference in Warsaw in October. And the problem is that if you, if you look at uh, the, all the studies and combine them in meta-analyses, you, you see an effect for vitamin D blood levels but you don't see an effect for supplementation. And so I've got to make the case that you've got to look at the best studies with the highest supplementation levels and the highest doses, highest results. Um, I'm busy working on trying to make that um, a manuscript. The other thing I'm doing is trying to write a, a related manuscript showing that, that, first of all, trying to overcome vitamin D deficiency is, is not what you want to do that you really want to look at vitamin D for, opt for optimal health. And um, now, like I say, the Michael Hollick said it's above 30. GrassrootsHealth.net was able to show in 2017 or earlier that if you look at the what you know from, from 25 for vitamin D studies in the blood, 
that is between 40 and 60 nanograms per milliliter where you want to be um, because that's where a lot of these uh, outcomes have their uh, optimal uh, effects. What I'm sure finding now with, with um, uh, looking at diabetes and some of these more recent cancer studies um, that you really want to think about aiming towards 60 to 80 nanograms per milliliter. So the second manuscript is on the evidence that 60 to 80 is where you want to be. Now, it's probably going to be very few uh, physicians who will take this up, but maybe some researchers will take it up. Maybe somebody will start doing a little study, and hopefully it will, in a few years, be accepted, but maybe quite a few years. If, if we still don't have an acceptance on cancer after 40 years, um, it's going to be a long haul. But I learned as a graduate student to just be in there for the long haul. I also learned when I was studying physics in, in Berkeley in the 60s that often um, the new findings, the, the, the revolutionary findings in one field can be made by people who come from outside the field because they don't accept the paradigms of the field. For example, many doctors are taught that if you take too much vitamin D, it can have adverse effects like hypercalcemia because it's fat soluble. That's um, nonsense. Um, but what I also learned is that people come from outside the field may have new approaches, such as the ecological approach that the medical system is totally at odds with. They, they totally just dismiss it. But it's, it's like doing an, un, an unplanned experiment with millions of people and you have all these data to, to, uh, to harvest and analyze. And it's so inexpensive to do and so powerful, but it's just thought of as well as a hypothesis. Now, now let's go and prove it with, with um, clinical trials, which they, they poorly uh, plan. So it's, it's, I sort of, you know, I'm sort of, an, and I'm not earning money if, uh, to speak of as being a medical practitioner. I'm a physicist doing epidemiology. And I just find it's good science to try to, you know, find out what's really going on and try to help save lives and try to uh, try to promote uh, simple ways to by changing diet and, and vitamin D supplementation and so on to to make uh, people healthier. Yeah, well, I, I really hope your message continues to echo. Um, you're you're a big name out there, and I'm 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 really glad that we got to have this conversation today. I I, I learned so much, um, and you. I feel like you could just keep going and 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 rattling off uh, every probably everything that's ever been studied about vitamin D, um, but I, I think this will be a, a nice place to to wrap up. Um, did you have anything else that you wanted to put out there and and let people know? Or no, I, thank you very much for inviting me. I I, I I look forward to seeing the podcast and and, and promoting it as well. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks. Hey guys, thanks for sticking around for the whole episode. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you learned something new. I'd like to encourage people to go and check William's work out. He's the co-author of a book called Embrace the Sun by Mark Sorensen. If you'd like to keep up with my work, feel free to follow me on social media using at Nutrition. I've got many great guests lined up for the future, so make sure you keep in touch. Thanks so much and take care everyone.